Welcome to Voices from the Vernacular Music Center. I'm Roger Landis. And I'm Chris Smith. And this is a podcast from the Vernacular Music Center at Texas Tech University. The Vernacular Music Center is a center for teaching, research, and advocacy in the world's vernacular musics and dance. That is, musics and dance which are learned, taught, and passed on by ear and in the memory. In this first series, produced with funding from the TTU Office of the Vice President for Research and Innovation, we talk about how the BMC engages with music and dance from around the world, and about the connections and the history and the community meaning of these art forms. We hear from players, scholars, dancers, builders, and listeners about times and places and people, and together we discover and celebrate the webs of human meaning which connect all of them. Thanks for joining us. In previous episodes, we've centered on instruments, genres, ideas, and guests. But this week, we're exploring our newest feature for the Bibliophiles, the VVMC Book Club, focusing on books that one or another of us, or our guests, have found meaningful in the work that we do. Be sure to listen at the end, or check the show notes online for our bookshop.org link. Do you know there's an awful lot to be said about this Irish traditional folk music and folklore? Because, first of all, you have to learn it. And first you must learn the talk, and then you must learn the grip, and after that you must learn the trickly how, and then you have the whole lot, only just to keep on practicing it. Because uh, Seamus Ennis knows far more about this than even the old folk lordy lordy themselves. Because Seamus Ennis once met a little leprechauny truckly hoe at the bottom of the garden dust and up the garden path, which came up from that in the Limeretti Limeretti hillhockers, before the Earthian Throve, before the Leprechaun area, and long before the Argy Forry. And that was in the deep pond doom before the Emerald Isle was ever dropped in the water. That was the great folklorist and Ellen Piper and raconteur Seamus Innes uh, sharing with us uh, some of his ideas about approaching traditional Irish music. Yeah, it's from a, a wonderful record, a compilation of Seamus Ennis's playing and storytelling, as Roger said, called 40 Years of Irish Piping, which was issued probably 20 years ago now, about 20 years after Seamus's uh, uh, untimely death. Seamus Ennis was an amazing man. And I think in some ways his spirit and the spirit of a few others kind of hovers over this week's book. The reason that we selected that particular track from 40 Years of Irish Piping is because it actually forms the epigraph that begins today's book club sample, today's book, book club specimen, which is the Belfast poet Kieran Carson's wonderful book called Last Night's Fun. Now, Last Night's Fun is the name of a tune, and tune titles play a big role in this book, as we'll discover. But the, the full title of the book by this poet and traditional musician from Belfast, Kieran Carson, is Last Night's Fun in and out of time with Irish traditional music. And concepts of time and wordplay about time are just shot through this book. It's had various subtitles in different editions. I think sometimes publishers have tried to figure out what to call this book or how to subtitle it to uh, 
to explain to the reader what they're getting. Because as I know from teaching this book, when I teach it in an Irish folklore class, it's often uh, students are a bit flummoxed by language like that of Seamus Ennis or that of of Kieran Carson. So it's, it's one of my favorite books. For me personally, as somebody who plays Irish trad music, I sometimes say to my students, it's the closest thing in prose that I can imagine evoking what it feels like to play traditional Irish music. And it's as much about food <laughs> and cigarettes and the the uh, the urban geography of Belfast, and it's also a kind of memoir. Um, it's it's also about Kiran Carson's own experience encountering traditional music. He didn't grow up in it; he he was a city kid, but he encounters it. And it's also uh, the story of his entry into the traditional music of Ireland, and it's it's one of my favorite books in the world. It reminds me. Um... Well, when I first read it, I didn't know about Christopher Small's work uh, and his his formulation, quote, musicking. Yeah. Um, but if somebody asked me, can you give me an example of it really in-depth musicking, I would hand them Karen Carson's book because he he shows the entire uh, environment around Irish music. I mean, for those of us who, who came to it from without um, – it's a, it takes a little while to get into the heart of it, but once you're in it, you're really in the midst of it. And all of these uh, non, you know, presumably non-musical features that are in the book really abs uh, are absolutely essential to understanding the culture and the music. They're part yeah, of the music. Yeah, and and I, I absolutely agree with you. And there 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 are whole chapters in which it's really all about how do you take your Irish fry on the morning after the night before or what is it like to, what is the interplay between time in an Irish music session or in the old days smoking cigarettes in an Irish music session? Roger and I both remember the days in Ireland when you'd walk into a pub somewhere in Ireland and the, the layers of smoke were like almost, they were like antediluvian geo, geological layers. You'd walk in and the smoke would eddy. In layers. It sounds horrible. And looking back on it, it seems almost impossible that it, there could ever have been places. But Carson talks about that and he talks about how to fry an egg and he talks about the titles of tunes. In fact, there's one entire chapter that's just a listing of every object he sees when he visits a flute maker's workshop. Just an entire, it's like this Joycean list of all that can be observed. And it's, as Roger's saying, it's it's immersive. And it actually, I, I hadn't thought about it till just now when you said it, Roger, um, that, that reference to Christopher Small's wonderful book called Music, as a, uh, Music of the Common Tongue. Small is a music educator, as Roger said, and he's talking primarily about the African-American tradition, what he understands to be the African-American tradition. And that book, which is probably one that we'll address in some future iteration of the book club, music of the common tongue. It absolutely is about the the business, the, the social business, the social environments, the community building, the communication that happens through the making of music in the African diasporic tradition. And this is book, this book, the Kiran Carson last night's fun. It's a book about the lore and the people and the history and the self-knowledge and the smoking cigarettes and the frying eggs and the making of pochine 
and uh, that that are all, if you're in it, as Roger says, I think if you're in it and you read this book, it reminds me of being in it. You know, during lockdown, we haven't been able to make those visits that we so wish. And we've got, I've got friends on the Aran Islands off the coast of Ireland who are, it's an absolutely wonderful place there off of Galway Bay, the three, uh, the three islands uh, of the, of the Aran Islands. And there was a period of time during the lockdown where they just closed down. And, you know, they're this idyllic tourist destination. If you know the map of Ireland, they're outside of Galway Bay. They, the, the Aran Islands look like sort of the, the backs of three whales breaking, breaking the surface in the bay. The big island in Ishmore is the one that has the famous semicircular fort uh, called Don Angus, about which a friend of ours wrote a wonderful song many years ago. And Aran just shut down. There, it's a tourist destination. Their, their principal livelihood is people visiting these idyllic places, but they closed down for the pandemic. And uh, so I haven't been able to go there and see my friends and my wife's friends and the places that we love and the people that we love. But reading this book kind of makes me feel like there's a there's a line, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a line that I'll read later on, um, uh, where Carson says, he's remembering another time in his life with the music, and he says, um, I'm there now because of uh, in his case, writing this chapter, or in my case, when I reread that chapter. In preparation for this uh, episode, I was reviewing the text because it's been many years since I read it. I think I read it when it came out back in the 90s or or in the early aughts. Um, and just skimming it and then being pulled in by Carson's language at various points and his description of a session, actually, it was really disorienting because for a few minutes, it took me to Joe McHugh's pub uh, in 1990 in Liscanner, County Clare, my first trip to Ireland. Um, it, was, it was my second or third um, session in Ireland in a very small country pub um, with no you know, big name hotshot musicians around, just local people and, um, and feeling very, very welcomed and um, knowing the tunes and uh, but also the thing the the thing that was disorienting is when i had the memory i could smell the place you know uh, i could smell the smoke i could smell the the guinness i could smell the toasted sandwiches mm-hmm. um you know they probably the little- brine coming the brine coming off of liscanner bay yeah yeah, yeah liscanner uh, for for those who don't know the west coast of ireland liscanner is is uh, just south of the Cliffs of Moher, the famous Cliffs of Moher that stood in for the Cliffs of Insanity in the Princess Bride film. And uh, Liscanner, is, it's, a, it's a beautiful little town um, that looks out to, to the North Atlantic. And they quarry slate there. It's, it's a famous, uh, famous place for quarrying Liscanner stone. And uh, it's used all over the west of Ireland. And it's a very distinctive kind of landscape because it's rolling, but there are not very many trees because it's open to the North Atlantic. And it's not often super cold, but there's always a wind and it always smells of the sea because it's always coming from the West. So you were in McHugh's and the scanner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember it hadn't been very many uh, years since Joe himself had passed on and the locals and the staff were talking about him and telling stories and Many of them I'm not able to share here, but uh, <laughs> uh, very funny and ribald, let's say. 
uh, and some of them involving really prominent Irish American uh, p- uh, polit- politicians who had visited. Um, and I remember there were jars, many jars behind on the shelf behind the the uh, the bar. You know, a lot of a lot of pubs will have a a shelf behind the bar with and backed with a mirror, and then all kinds of stuff in front of it. There were many jars, open jars, full of coins, and it looks like the coins probably went back. Oh, well before the foundation of the European Economic Union and the and the and the uh, imposition of the euro. I mean, there were. I think uh, royal coins uh, in there, and 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 Irish Free State coins, and it was it was amazing. Just this jumble of this pile, piled coins, and every once in a while, I guess the ones on top were more current because every once in a while the the publican would reach around and grab a few of them and use them. But uh, uh, it must have. I, I imagined it was a tip jar from, you know, f- uh, of several decades provenance. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a thing in a lot of the country pubs for those who haven't been. A lot of the country pubs there used to be in the west of Ireland that the pub would be a place uh, not just for evening festivities, not just for music sessions, not just for drinking uh, porter and whiskey in the evenings, but it was also the country shop. And so maybe the front room would be a, a, a little general grocery, or they'd have some green grocery, or they'd have tinned foods and tobacco and, you know, household sundries and that kind of thing. It was also often the post office in um, in the smaller parishes in the west of Ireland. And so the pubs, the country pubs in the west of Ireland, many of which have now closed as people move to the cities, the country pubs were a real center and they were, they were, they were, the pubs were open from eight o'clock in the morning until closing up time at half past nine or 10 o'clock or half 10. Um, because it was it was the post office and the grocer and uh, the vegetable store or the seed monger or the place where you'd pick up your mail or you'd go to have a jar or to sing songs or to listen to Joe Cooley play. To get back to the to this wonderful book, which has already <laughs> sent both Roger and myself on this stream of reminiscences, there's a I, I want to just talk a little bit about the organization of the book. But to do that, I also kind of want to say a little bit about Kieran Carson, about about who he was. And I uh, I encountered this book of Carson's before I read any of his poetry, which is kind of mass backwards for somebody like me. But someone recommended the book to me. I, I don't even remember where I, I encountered it, but I read it and I was very taken with it. And I read it maybe a couple of years after I'd first been to Ireland. So I didn't have the same familiarity like... You know, Carson spent most of his time in Belfast and Fermanagh and and the, the border counties between Ulster and the Republic of Ireland. That's not where I knew, but he was born in Belfast in in the late 1940s. And as I said, he 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 grew up um, in Belfast. He was a city kid, and he was actually a, a member of the Irish folk revival. We've talked about revival in previous episodes of the podcast. And so part of this book is about Carson from the age of 12 or 13 or 14, beginning to grow up and beginning to realize that there was this traditional music that old people played and uh, about how how he went to find it. And the sort of the experience of being a 60s folky who found his way into, tradi- into traditional music. He was born in 1948, right? So he would have been in his early 20s by 1970, which is right around when this revival was getting started. So he had the chance to meet a lot of the old, we'd say, the old fellas, right? 
the mostly the men who played and uh and the book so the book is about uh it's a memoir maybe i could say in part it's a memoir of discovery it's his memories of discovering and finding his way into this stuff yeah and and the structure is so interesting because there are sections most of the sections are very short and there are sections of almost stream of consciousness like you you are here kind of kind of reportage uh, although not not you know journalistic clipped speech whatsoever it's very poetic and then there are sections that are just poetry there are sections mm -hmm. that are quotes there mm -hmm. are sections that are jokes yeah. uh shaggy dog stories yeah it's um I, I don't know if this will make sense to a lot of our listeners, but to me, it's like spending an evening in a pub itself because you're going to hear those kinds of things from people near you. I mean, if you're social at all, if you're friendly at all, um, you're going to hear these sorts of things in the space of an evening. And if you have never been to Ireland and you want to get a feel for what it might like, what it might be like to be in that social setting before you go. And we do hope you will go when things open back up. Reading this book is a great way to get a feel for that. Uh, a feel for the way they, they turn a phrase, the way they surprise you, they lead you in one way, and, you know, they lead you to one, or you think you're being led to a certain place and that turns out to be a different place. Um, their unique humor, um, just their take on the English language and how, um, you know, there is such a thing as Irish English. It's, it's a distinct, um, I don't know if you would say it's a dialect of English, but it's different enough that it, it can be identified. Um, and, and it has a lot to do with word order. Um, they use alternative word orders, which many of which come from the Irish language. Um, and interestingly enough, our completely understandable to native speakers of English. Uh, the first time you hear them, you have no problem with comprehension because probably because of, of the influence of Irish and other Celtic languages on English as English was developing. Um, but it's, it's a, a, a fascinating and entertaining read. It's also something that you could take a really episodic approach to. Um, in fact, it'd be fun to kind of play book roulette with it is just pick up, pick it up at a random page, find the beginning of a section, wherever that is, and read that one section and then put it down and, and, and come back to it when you can. Reading it out of sequence completely works because it's written out of sequence. Right. It is. It's written out of sequence in, in terms of there's no, there's not a, a specific chronology, although interwoven, there's a bit of this autobiographical chronology. And it starts when he's five or six and he hears his postman father playing the melodeon. And then when he gets his first, he first gets his hands on a guitar and he's a folky. And so there's a bit of more or less chronological autobiography. But as Roger says, it's, vi it's very vignette based. And some of the vignettes are very literal or anecdotal or they're jokes or, Whole chapters that are transcriptions of the fiddle play of the of speech, where we call it oral history, right? You know, um, the way a folklorist, the great Henry Glassy, takes the words of people and lays them out on the page with an orthography that suggests that they're poetic because it finds the structure. So he does that with Seamus Ennis's magnificent words, and he does it with John Lochran's words, and he does it with a few others. The titles of the chapters themselves are, I think, a wonderful conceit. They're a wonderful peg for upon which 
he hangs things. And although Karen Carson is deceased now, which is a great loss to all of us, I would be I would have been dead curious if I'd ever talked to him, had the had the, the good fortune to talk to him, to ask him, did you think of the in, in with which of these chapters did you think of the title and then think of an anecdote? Or when did you think of an anecdote and then add the title? Because if I just I'm just reading down the table of contents, and they're all the titles of tunes. Last night's fun which is a, a recollection of encountering the music of Joe Cooley. I'm going to read from it in a minute. Or Ask My Father, which is a series of jokes. Or Boil the Breakfast Early, which is about how do you prefer your eggs. Or Pigtown, which is a shaggy dog joke about time meaning nothing to a pig. And so on and on and so on and so forth. So I would be dead curious. It's it's This is a this is an analogy I've never made before. I've, I've spoken about this as coming out of a kind of Irish oral poetry tradition, the way that if you read Joyce aloud, James Joyce makes a whole lot more sense read aloud than if you read it silently on the page. I've I've never really thought about this in in the past, but it's very it it makes sense to me. It's a little bit like Kerouac's first thought, best thought, where you just read, you just write, you write the words that come in some of these chapters, or even William Burroughs, the very experimental uh, beat author who did cutups, who would author a text and then chop it into pieces and throw it in the air and then put it all together, intentionally seeking this nonlinear explication. And I think one of the reasons it reminds me of that is that, you know, we've talked before on the podcast about the fact that that just because people are working in a traditional idiom does not mean that their art is conservative. It is connected. It's connected to processes. It's connected to inheritances and awareness of lineages. And there's incredible stuff here about the tie between music and landscape. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's conservative, and it does, definitely doesn't mean that it it is it is impossible for it to be experimental. I think a lot of this this prose is very experimental in ways that are wonderfully evocative. So, if it's okay, I want to I want to read a little bit from the first chapter, which is um, it's the chapter after which the book itself is titled. Uh, so it's called Last Night's Fun as well, and he's recalling waking up in the morning after a session in a small town in Antrim in the north. And he says, uh, he opens by saying, we're in Bally Weird on the outskirts of Portrush, County Antrim. And it's the morning after the night before, or rather it's sometime after noon. And we've just staggered back from the local spar, which is a food shop, laden with the makings of a fry, bacon, sausages, black pudding, white pudding, potato bread, and the yellow cornmeal soda farls peculiar to the Northwest region. It's all sizzling in the pan. The almost visible aroma wafts through the house. Soon everything will be arrayed on mismatched plates. We'll contemplate it briefly before eating it. The wavy bacon and the frilly crisp flipped over eggs. The puckered burst seams of the sausages. The milk tooth bits of fat in the black pudding. It all glistens under a glaze of melted lard ornamented by the fadge and soda cut in neat triangles. Tendrils of steam rise from the six odd cups no words are spoken as we ruminate and gulp. Then plates are pushed aside and cigarettes lit. Through the haze, some fragments of the night before come back. And then he starts recalling where they were and starting to play a session in a bar that was empty. And by the end of the night, it was so crowded, they couldn't even bow their fiddles. And uh, if you're not a carnivore, that description of a full Irish fry may be a little bit overwhelming. Um, and it's not what I would necessarily eat myself, but by gosh, that paragraph of that language absolutely evokes what it's like to eat an Irish fry 
the morning after the night before. And so it's just this incredibly, it's evocative, as Roger was saying. Yeah. And the and the phrase, you know, the morning after the night before is something that you hear a lot in, in Irish culture. And, it, and, you know, it basically it's a fancy way of saying aftermath, <laughs> you know. Uh, not only the fun and the frivolity and the music of the night before, but also the imbibing, the and, the 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 quality of being overhung. Yes, and uh, and I remember the first time I was in Ireland, and I've heard it many times since, uh, saying that uh, you know a good fry, a, a fried breakfast, an Irish fried breakfast, is the best cure for the head the next morning. Yeah, well, it's nice to think so. Anyway, it all does seem to sort of fit together. But the, this chapter, Last Night's Fun, is really about the accordion player, Joe Cooley. Joe Cooley was from Connie Galway. And um, it's Carson is reminiscing about where he first heard the tune called Last Night's Fun, which is in the playing of Joe Cooley, the only full-length LP of Cooley that was ever made, which was an assembly of tracks that were put together actually after Cooley's death. Um, things that had been recorded in various settings or live settings or recorded for Radio Telefish Aaron, which is the Irish National Radio Service. And a lot of that material is on the web, and you can even find videos uh, that were shot by RTE. And Carson, he's recalling, and he's recalling being an instrument playing this session, and then he's recalling, as Roger was saying, very stream of consciousness, where he first heard the tune Last Night's Fun. And he talks about how it's Joe Cooley he hears playing it in his head. And so I want to read the end of this passage, and then maybe we'll go into, we'll ask our, our wonderful engineer, Gavin, to interpolate some of Joe Cooley's playing here. just want to read the end of this chapter, the opening chapter of Last Night's Fun. And, and I want to say, um, because really what this chapter is about, it's about memory uh, and the joy of being together, playing music and in a place. But it's also, I, I would say, I, I find it a quite beautiful eulogy to Cooley, who had died. And, um, and of, as, as Carson says, of the sorrow just beneath the surface. So this is the closing of the first chapter of Last Night's Fun. He's looking at the LP. Joe Cooley died of lung cancer on 21 December 1973. I turn over the sleeve. The sleeve is Cooley's face and shoulders and the upper half of the box, the straps digging into his collarbone. The Palo Soprani radiator grill art deco aluminum sound plate and fingerboard on his right, the bellows on his left stretched in an elegant accordioned ridge. He has his jacket on, a floppy colored shirt, a tie, a jaunty cigarette between his lips. It's a gaslight snap, blown up till all the grains show till you're drawn in to reinvent the smile you imagine to be there behind the eyes in shadow, as you're drawn into the gas of the recording, of the mono LP hissing blackly and revolving in its shellacky crepuscular upon the turntable of an archaic deca mahogany veneered radiogram the size of a china cabinet with its dog-sized speakers and dead mice inside them, after you foolishly abandoned them in the back room with a damp mouse-infested gardener's cottage that you left for where you live now. I'm back there now. And Joe is playing Last Night's Fun.
So that's the wonderful Joe Cooley recorded in 1971, I think, in Peterswell in Galway. The accordion player Joe Cooley with his brother playing Bauran and Des Mulcair playing banjo. It's a recording that was made actually by Tony McMahon, uh, the, another great accordion player who was very much a disciple of Cooley's music when McMahon worked for Radio Telefish Aaron, which was the Irish National Radio and Television Broadcasting Service. And RTE had a practice really ever since its foundation in the early 1920s of going out and recording traditional music. Seamus Ennis, who we heard at the top of the program, worked for RTE as a collector and a presenter. Tony McMahon worked for RTE. A lot of the traditional musicians have done that. And so one of the reasons we have this recording called Cooley, which Carson really imprinted on for that first chapter of last night's fun, is because of the work that RTE did. And to me, that chapter leads into Cooley's playing, and it seeks to, I think it, the writing seeks to come out of Cooley's playing, to find the same grain in a language, to find a, a granular language which feels as textured and rich as Carson experiences Cooley's playing to be. So that was Joe Cooley playing Last Night's Fun. We're going to move on, move forward in this edition of Book Club. We're going to move forward in this text by Kieran Carson, the Belfast poet, called Last Night's Fun, the In and Out of Time with Irish Music. And as we said earlier in the program, there's a lot of different kinds of writing here, and it is very nonlinear. And you could, as Roger said, almost play chapter roulette, where you just pick it up, find the beginning of a chapter, and read from there. And that's kind of what we're doing right now. This 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 chapter that we're that we're looking at is called Hard to Fill, which is the name of a tune. But it also is about in in Carson's locution, it's about the fact that playing the simple system, six hole wooden flute, it, it, there's it's a it's a it's a breath it's a wind instrument and control of the breath, not just con manual control of the fingers or control of your embouchure, but being able to figure out how to fill that flute and make the whole thing resonate. It's a, it's a bit of a task. Anybody who's ever learned to try to play a transverse flute, it's, it's, it's not a ready-made kind of thing. And so the, the chapter is entitled Hard to Fill, and he goes to a lot of different places. He recall in, in the writing, he recalls the various instruments he played and how he took on different flutes at different times when he was in a different place in his playing and in his life. But then he delves in, Roger's going to delve in with us to this, this section in the chapter Hard to Fill, um, when he goes to visit the, the flute maker, Sam Murray. We are in Sam's shop at one exchange place, Belfast. Exchange places in Belfast parlance. And, quote, entry, a narrow lane between two streets, a backwater or shortcut a deviation from the beaten path. Exchange place is an entry. We talk and breathe in an exhalation, a many layered scent of shellac, beeswax, raw and boiled linseed oil, tallow, almond oil, aromatic blackwood shavings, nitric acid, and ammonia. I believe you can smell the blue steel blades and boxwood handles of the antique tools. Gravers, gouges, chisels, pliers, diamond files and flat files, pincers and chasers. You pick one up and feel its oily, sharp edge with grainy specks of sawdust on it. Then there are the immense solid lathes with their treadle boards and black cast iron flywheels and counterweights, their headstocks and their tailstocks, 
their spindles, and their mandrels. One of the lathes is made by Kinnon of Fishamble Street in Dublin, whose premises were Neil's Music Hall, where Handel premiered his Messiah. This Kinnon lathe passed into, into the custodianship of the Irish Horological Society and re resides here now because Sam believes that instruments and tools are not mere servants, but collaborators in our fate. The other lathe, made in 1806 by the sonorous firm of Holzapfel and Dreierlein, has some other complicated history attached to it. The pair of them have weight a gloomy, pondering solidity that reassures you by its presence and its earned place here. These are lathes which are broken up and which languished in sheds and backyards till some curious, wheeling-dealing, slow catenation of events led to their resurrection and their redeployment. And this is not to speak of the unspeakable archaeological layers of things strewn and assembled on every available surface in the workshop. Pins, papers, screws, tobacco tins and coffee jars, thread, waxed paper, empty bobbins, walrus tusk, billiard balls, sealing wax and string, envelopes, cigar boxes, empty glasses, tannin and crusted teacups, bus tickets, knives, a bottle of Angostura bitters, a drawing plate, a bicycle repair kit, two old trade tin trays, Ross's mineral waters and Buckfast tonic wine, with rusted pox in them, bills, invoices, a blue tin of Vaseline, Christmas cards and postcards, a blowtorch, fluxes, solders, coils of silver wire, brass tubing, wine corks, an old cardboard advertisement for Bassett's licorice all sorts, brass plate, a Swiss army knife, dust, unaccountable detritus and filings of long-gone operations, a bow-peep matchbox which rattles with brass thumbtacks when you pick it up, washers, drill bits, oil cans, teapots, files, gimlets, scissors, a copy of the Irish News from last year, a shriveled chip, Kirby grips, bulldog clips, jubilee clips, and paper clips, a square damp packet of Saxa salt, blue tack, bits of putty, sealing wax, a little paper packet of cigarette lighter flints, a candle stub, a zippo lighter, cotton wool, a sticky tin of Tate and Lyle's golden syrup, wisps of steel wool, and the blue glint of methylated spirits shivering in a glass, square-shouldered, glass-stoppered bottle against a stained, scarred patch of the workbench. On a windowsill, three little tinker-made tin inkwell-shaped receptacles with milled brass screw tops containing pumice, tripoli, and rouge, each bearing the original early Victorian price of three shillings.
if I weren't drunk with love of Ireland at the beginning of that paragraph, I would definitely be under the influence by the end of it. Yes, that's a remarkable passage. And um, as somebody who is interested in linguistics and reads about it a fair amount, uh, and and many many of our listeners may have seen this as a meme in social media. There is a set order for when you have multiple um, um, adjectives in a phrase. There's a set order about which kinds of adjectives go first, and this is like a virtuoso performance of that. Yeah, it's a, as I said, you know, I encountered this book before I read Carson's poetry, and then I, I went back and and read a number of his volumes of poetry, which is stylistically, you know, goes a lot of places stylistically. Uh, some of its richest, his richest work, I think, is about Belfast and about memory, because I always remember that the the subtitle of this book is "In and Out of Time with Irish Music," and it's really about many comprehensions of time, time within tunes, time, the way that time stops or floats or speeds up or slow downs when you're in the middle of a session, of taking time in between tunes, of looking back upon time and recalling time. There's a later passage, which maybe we'll get to, in which the language itself literally feels like late summer in in Fermanagh and how consciousness itself kind of seems to slow down and change depending on where you are, what you're doing, and especially how you feel as you line up your own biorhythms with the rhythms of the season and the landscape around you. So we're going to go now to one of my favorite sections of the book, which is um, a story that may be an anecdote, or maybe it's a maybe it's a joke masquerading as an anecdote. Sometimes it's hard to tell, but this comes from the storytelling of a man, a fiddler uh, from uh, from the North, from Fermanagh, I believe, named Mick Hoy. So Kieran Carson um, includes this and, and credits Mick Hoy for the story. Here it is. There were these three fiddlers once upon a time, and they were in for this competition. And the first one came up, and he was dressed in a dress suit, and he had a dicky bow and a bib on him, and the fiddle case was made out of crocodile skin. And when he brought out the fiddle, what was it but a Stradivarius? And he started to play, and be God, he was desperate. And then the second fiddler came up, and he was wearing a nice Burton's suit and a matching handkerchief and tie and socks with clocks on them. And he had a nice wooden case and not a bad fiddle in it. So he got it out and started to play and be God, he was desperate. And then the third fiddler came up and the elbows was out of his jacket and the toes peeping from his shoes and the fiddle case was tied with bits of wire. And when he brought out the fiddle, there was more strings on the fiddle than on the bow. And he started to play and be God, he was desperate too. <laughs> now that, that is a quintessential bit of Irish storytelling and humor. Yeah. Um, for um, the way in which an expectation is set up. 
It's also a really great example of what the old classic comedians like W.C. Fields and people of his ilk used to call the rule of three. And it comes from vaudeville and God knows, probably from the ancient world before that. But you do something three times because the first time you're setting up an expectation, the second time you subvert that that uh, expectation. And the third time they really, the, for those who didn't get it the first two times, they get it the third time and then be God at that point, you're ready to move on, right? Because you're tired yeah. of it. Yeah. And so they tend to do things in threes. If you, if you, for lovers of classic, uh, um, comedy movies from say the thirties, go back and look at them and see if you can see the rule of three playing yeah. out. And a lot of these gags, apparently it was the way they structured vaudeville routines. Yeah. And it, and you're absolutely right. It does go back before that. In fact, it goes in, in the Irish tradition, tradition of the Irish language. It goes all the way back to pre Patrick Ireland. There, there are, there are large collections of short poems called the triads. And the triads are literally nuggets of wisdom, like three things there are that make a house comfortable, a warm fire, uh, an open jar and a woman's touch. Three things there are that make a house uncomfortable, uh, the, a cold hearth, a drafty window and a woman's sharp tongue. It's very sexist language, but, but it gets at, at something that's really deep in oral history and oral poetry, oral literature, which is that mnemonics and structures and repeated constructions help you remember things. And they do set up expectations. You, you say, Bigotti was desperate. And people go, oh, ha, ha, ha. And then you say it the second time, and Bigotti was desperate. And that reinforcement of saying it the second time, then when we come up with the third and we think this third fellow who's the one who's not from the city and he's got more strings on the fiddle than he even has on his bow. And he started to play and Bigotti was desperate too. And it's, it's, it's incredibly, it's classic. It's like, it's like a blackout sketch in vaudeville, as you said. It and also it, reminds it, me, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. It, it also makes fun of this prejudice that, that a lot of us have coming into the music, particularly those of us from outside or, maybe like the folklorists, you know, who are studying it in kind of an analytical way. I've heard lots of stories told about uh, folklorists coming in and, 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 and being really paying a lot of attention and trying really hard, but fundamentally misunderstanding certain things. This pokes fun at our prejudice that the simpler, the poorer, the least advantaged is going to be the most authentic. The most authentic. Oh, yes. Yeah. This is don't, don't yeah. give me any of that modern stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's wonderful. And it also, it reminds me also of something that I'll tell this story. Uh, I'll just tell a brief version of the story, or maybe I'll save the story for another time, but I'll, I'll say that the, I'll provide the gloss that somebody gave. Um, I was traveling once in North Clare with a group of students, um, young men and women from of college age and, uh, we were at a site and an, an older gentleman, what they call a pensioner in Ireland, somebody who's retired was there. And and he said something, uh, he had a brief exchange with one of the young women and he said something, which is not at all creepy, but was just a lovely compliment. It was, he was, they can turn a phrase and uh, we got a laugh out of it. And we came back and we were talking to our landlady that night and said, and, and told the landlady, ah, yes. And this old fella at, at, uh, at the castle said this thing to Robin and and our landlady laughed and she said, I love to hear the old people talk. Because like this story from McCoy, who was born, I think he was born in the teens, if I remember right. 
um, like this old, this old, this this pensioner, as they say, um, who young Robin had a compliment from. The it's a way of treating speaking as artistry, and it. A lot of people would say it's the way that everybody talked before the televisions came into the pubs, because that changed the dynamic and it changed the focus of attention. But as we were saying at the beginning, the pubs were a center of social communities. You know, you got your mail, you got your Tate and Lyle's golden syrup, you got your tea, you got your milk if you didn't get from the get it from the farm the next field over. And uh, with as those places have disappeared or closed down, there are a lot of pubs that I that Roger and I know in the west of Ireland that are. No longer there because of urbanization and change, and uh, there's a real loss there. There's a there's a uh, as another book we'll hear on the on the book club says, you know, things are gained and things are lost. So much has changed just in the 30 years since I was first there in 1990. I can remember going in a few country pubs that were still segregated. You know, where you have the tap room, which is for men only. And then the public house, which is where the women and children were welcome. Um, and now that's not that's not the case in, in Ireland. You you have a pub and it's completely integrated in terms of, of gender. Um, one major change was, well, the first time when I was first there in 1990, I remember being in a pub in Dublin the night before I flew home, having had this two weeks that just completely Two weeks on the west coast of Ireland, and Claire and uh, Galway, they just completely blew my mind. Um, talking to a young couple, and when they heard us speak and realized we were uh, Americans, um, and they were both smoking, and they said, you know, uh, within 10 years, smoking is going to be illegal in pubs in Ireland. And I, and I said, what? You've got to be kidding. And they said, no, no, no. He said, we can do it over here. You can't do it in your country because it's viewed as a uh, – as a political issue or a, a personal rights issue. And I said, well, how's it viewed here? And he says, well, as a public health issue, <laughs> which, and, and he said, because of that, because we're approaching it this way and because we don't have any tobacco lobby, um, he said, we'll probably have it in 10 years. And I think it took eight years. Yeah. Um, and that change really changed the, the landscape for the music and for social life. And it's still kind of, you've been there since I have, but it still seems to me from what I hear that it's still adjusting. Well, I, 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 I would say, yeah. Although I would also say that when, when I, we heard about the initiatives, which were undertaken as a public health issue, primarily to protect the health of people who worked in pubs, because it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, one cigarette won't hurt somebody or the secondhand smoke, but they did it and they did it quickly. And I was shocked that it went through so quickly and so completely. And there was pushback and there was harumphing from politicians and that kind of thing. But there is a recollection. And I think maybe they've recalled, maybe they held on to, maybe they kept they they remain mindful that the pubs are actually an incredibly important thing in the social lives of people, especially rural people, especially older rural people. I remember one time I was staying in a in a in a, a, a for hire house outside of Milltown Malbay, and every morning I would see a guy go by in his tractor toward town on his on his tractor, and there would be an old guy riding on the harrow catching a ride into town because. If you were an older person living in the west of Ireland in the countryside, 
you needed those Kaylee houses. You needed to be able to walk to your neighbor. So you needed to be able to walk to the pub because that's how you got your mail and got your government assistance and got your sugar and milk for your and, and your tea. And it was also where, where you had your human contact. So this book is about that. This book is about about becoming a fully fledged human being and kind of finding your sense of who you are through discovering a music and the lore and the community and the connections that that go into it. And although Carson wrote this book probably, as we were saying, probably 30 years ago, and he's he's now deceased, um, this was a really important book for me. And I think it was actually, I'd like to think that it was an important book for him because he captures in a way that I think very few books do what it feels like to be inside a musical tradition. And in his case, he was somebody who entered into it, who had to find his way in, not unlike the way that you and I did, Raj. Yeah. I remember um, hearing him say in one of the various interviews that I've, that I've heard with him um, that this was a book he never expected to write. And by extension, I'm going to say, if he, if he didn't expect to write it, he probably didn't expect anyone to write it. Like this, this, this book is so original. Uh, I, I have to say, as, as a recovering English major, uh, this is one of the most original structures of any book I've ever read, whether fiction or nonfiction. Uh, and it's just absolutely delightful, as, as we've said. So we're kind of coming to the end of this edition of the podcast and our inaugural edition of our book club feature. We've been trading conversation and the reading of passages back and forth from the Belfast poet Kieran Carson's wonderful and wildly and poetically original book called Last Night's Fun In and Out of Time with Irish Music. And uh, we thought we might close this week's edition, this edition dedicated to the book club, um, with a passage that comes from in the middle of the, the book. Um, the chapter is called Off the Bus, which is another tune title. And this is a, an exemplary chapter, and it contains storytelling from other people that he's transcribed and his own memories and finding the poetry in uh, the, the names of tunes and the sounds of birdsong. And he's talking about a time in the early 70s when he and his circle of friends were staying at a cottage in a place called Derry Vary, in Derry Gonnelly, in, in the north of Ireland, and about the heat and how they played and what they played and how time kind of slowed down for them. And uh, so we're going to close off. We'll just read you these passages. This is uh, the closing of the chapter Off the Bus from Karan Carson's Last Night's Fun. From time to time, we would make lethargic attempts to leave Very Dairy and would go down to the heat-shimmered minor road and watch it ooze and melt. The heavy air was redolent with tar and fuchsia blossom. Blackbirds whistled variations on the first bar of an uncollected reel. Drugged by July and crazy music, Deirdre and I would stand there like two petrol pumps for hours. An occasional car droned by, going elsewhere. A tractor passed us and left thick, wavy chevrons printed on the road. Time passed. Eventually, we would return to the house. We would fill the earthenware sink with cold spring water and plunge our hands up to the wrists in it to feel the bracelet cool about them. 
The stone walls and flags contained a block of damp microclimate. And if walls could talk, their message would be garbled. For as the molecules of the stone are altered slightly by the timpani of music and received discussion, it becomes a kind of lithophone. A tuning fork struck against it will resound with buzzes of a thousand sessions overlaid and embedded there in various degrees of promiscuity. The floating crowbar floats above the made behind the bar, beneath the blackthorn stick, and it's difficult to extricate a phrase from a competing other. Seekers of ghosts have recorded conversations in haunted, empty rooms, and the house in Veridari had a shiver of dark atmosphere. We were advised by Gary that in order to escape, we would have to put our jackets on back to front and inside out, this being a well-known antidote to spells. The Wren boys on their annual Stevens Day foray would do the same, thus rendering them anonymous. And in order to escape the world you temporarily inhabit, you must take its guise, put your arms into its reverse sleeves, and pull them out of themselves to show their blue pinstriped linings. You must walk backwards into the future like a Frankenstein monster with extended sleepwalker's arms. Inside out or not, a neighbor's neighbor finally gave us a lift to Enniskillen, and with one bound we were free. There and then we took the bus to Sligo, on our route to the far west. Voices from the Vernacular Music Center is hosted by Roger Landis and Chris Smith, and is produced with funding from the TTU Office of the Vice President for Research and Innovation. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the show notes for images, video and audio playlists, guest bios, and our Vernacular Books link at bookshop.org. And please, remember to like, share, and leave reviews. That's how more listeners hear about us. We tweet at Woke Academic and VMC Voices. Our post-production engineer is Gavin Stockard. And our VVMC Administrative Coordinator is Heather Belts. Check out her Possibly Haunted podcast. You can find our website at vernacularmusiccenter.org slash podcast. Special thanks to our podcast consultant, Seedpod Productions, at seedpodmedia.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs>